0: The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. A few years ago, um, I was with a couple of my children, my oldest Molly and uh, second-born Marky and my wife Beth out in San Diego, California. Have any of you ever been to San Diego before? Yeah, it's a great place. I don't know why you ever came back. It's, uh, it's an amazing, beautiful place. And in San Diego, we got to go to a, a particular spot called Sunset Cliffs. Sunset Cliffs in San Diego. And I wonder why it's named that. What do you think? Sunsets over the cliffs, right? Okay, so what this is, is this beautiful place on the coastline of California where there are these cliff sides that are essentially 60 to 70-foot sheer drop-offs to the ocean below. And looking out westward from this area, you can see the most magnificent sunsets uh, that you've ever seen over the Pacific Ocean. It's a beautiful place. But as I remember it, and as I think about going near the edge of these cliffs, these sunset cliffs, these sheer drops to crashing waves below, just the the thought of getting close to the edge there, it actually makes my palms begin to sweat. Because there's something actually terrifying about this type of environment, especially with young children. There's something about it, though, that draws you. It's, it's almost as if the same characteristics that make it dangerous are the ones that make it beautiful. There's, there's this self-preserving awe and reverence you have as you draw near to the edge of these cliffs because you want to see the beauty they provide, but there's also this fear of getting too close. And actually, I think this is the nature of all things that are far greater and more majestic than we are. In some sense, we're drawn to them because of their goodness, their beauty, their power, and their majesty, but there's this self-preserving reverence that cautions us from drawing too near and cautions us to keep our distance. And so I wonder if the edge of a cliff or the crash of waves on rocks can fill us with a measure of fear, then consider that God, who made the heavens, who's spoken with a word through billions of galaxies into existence, and who knows each of us by name, and each of those stars by name, the God of infinite power and majesty and holiness. Think about this. He came to earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered that if Jesus is who he says he is, and, and who he demonstrates himself to be, and confirms himself to be through his miracles and through his signs and wonders. If this is God in the flesh, then what would you expect to feel in His presence? What would you expect to feel? I think in the in, in the face of true holiness, we might fear, we might feel something that we wouldn't expect, and that is fear. Fear. This is maybe a, maybe the most overlooked perspective of Jesus that we see in Scripture. We often think of Jesus as meek and mild and and gentle and lowly, and he is all of those things. But all the pictures have him with with the perfect hair, the soft eyes, the the sheep over his shoulders, right? And yet this is God Almighty in the flesh. He is power. He is holiness. He is goodness beyond measure. And so to be in his presence is to experience on some level an awe and a reverence that is beyond measure comprehension and when we talk about fearing God we can think of God the Father and we think oh God God the Father Almighty that is is, uh, someone to be feared Jesus is the same God the same God and what we've seen in the gospel of, of Mark so far is that Jesus is Lord over the deep he's calmed storms with a word he is Lord over demons he is Lord over disease and he is even Lord over death raising to life those that have died And what we see in Jesus is is that that kind of power, when people are in the presence of that kind of power, when they see who he actually is and behold him rightly, that is a fearful experience in itself. And what we're going to see this morning, and I hope actually you can be encouraged by this, this is the objective of this message this morning, is that when we rightly behold Jesus, when we rightly understand who he is, then we need fear nothing else, nothing else. When I talk about fearing Jesus, I'm not talking about a reaction of horror or anxiety like he's going to pop out and scare you. No, that's not what I'm talking about when we talk about the fear of God. I think what we really mean when we're talking about the fear of God biblically is is two things. It's awe, awe, reverence, and it's also trust, trust, knowing that he's both great and that he is good. And that is what we experience when we rightly behold Jesus, his power and his goodness. It will lead us to a place where we need fear, nothing else. I think for many of us this morning, if you're over the age of maybe 25, it's September 11th, and we can remember exactly where we were that day, exactly what we experienced that day, what we felt that day. How many of you remember it like it was yesterday? Even though it was many, many years ago, we can put ourselves there. And when we remember what we felt on that day, as suddenly the skies were empty, everything was quiet, and on our television sets, the world seemed to be falling apart. I think we can all remember feeling a measure of fear and anxiety. And especially for a a kid growing up out of the 80s into the 90s, it was like the world was just safe. It was good. It was was all going to be okay. And then suddenly it was like it was never going to be safe again. That was the feeling. And... And that is a feeling that I think has stuck with us as a culture and as a nation, this, this sense of fear, this anxiety that's always lurking in the background because we realize maybe for the first time for some of us that this life is not safe and that fear has lingered. Some of you, apart from all that, have been very fearful lately, very anxious and about many things, haven't you? fearful about uh, politics, uh, fearful about your children's education, fearful about uh, the pressures of of your social media feeds and how you're supposed to react and what you're supposed to say, fearful about your your social circles and whether you're liked or or loved or accepted, fearful about conversations you know you need to have but you really don't want to, fearful about safety, fearful about health, about this insane economy, about the, the numbers of dollars and cents in your bank account as it gets smaller and smaller, afraid. And we need an answer to this, don't we? We need a a solution. We need an answer to our fear. And and, and I believe that Jesus gives us an answer to our fear. I believe that scripture gives us an answer to our fear. And as as we open up our Bibles to Mark, the chapter six, as we walk through this passage, I'm gonna give you uh, six observations that will help us, I believe, to overcome our fear or at least to put it in the proper place. Because there are legitimate reasons to fear. And yet there is an answer biblically to those things recall with me Jesus has he's been ministering to this great crowd he's done a lot of of great things but he's exhausted and him and his disciples are worn out and he's encouraging them to get away and get some rest and get away from the crowds for a little bit out in a desolate place but what happens in that desolate place 5,000 people plus, maybe up to 10,000 people come and find them when they're trying to rest in the wilderness. And as Pastor Milton told you about last week, Jesus essentially takes a Lunchable and feeds a stadium full of people by multiplying bread and fish and doing this great miracle for this great crowd but they are still exhausted. They are worn out. They have done so much. And so this is the setting. And actually in John chapter 6, it gives more context into into what's going to happen next because these crowds have gathered. They've seen Jesus heal. They've seen him work great miracles, and now he's feeding them. What could be better than that? This is who they want to be their king. And John chapter 6 in verse 14 says this. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet. This is the one who is foretold. This is the, the one that was to come, who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, don't know how that works, but they're going to try to make him king by force, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So, so the, the Jews that have gathered around Jesus, they want to declare him king, king of the Jews. They want him to lead them against Rome. They want him to bring this, this political salvation that they've been looking for for so long. But Jesus... Wasn't there for that. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. He had other work to do, and this is not his intention to just become their political ruler and provide bread and fish for them day after day. No, he has bigger things to do. He has kingdom work to do. And so here's what he does in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. It says, immediately he made his disciples, made them, get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. I love this about Jesus. He is a servant, and his disciples are worn out, and again and again, he's, they're running interference for him, blocking the crowds, doing security, all that kind of stuff, but he also is looking out for their best interest and their rest, and so he interferes with the crowds. He says, I'll dismiss everyone. You all go out into the boats now, and I will meet you on the other side. I'm going to spend some time in the mountain, mountains, and then I will meet you On the other side. So while they've formed protective barriers for him in the past, he stands in the way as they get in the boats and he dismisses them, and they get in those boats as night begins to fall, as the full moon comes out over the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and all is calm. And the disciples are sitting in that boat without Jesus at this point, just reflecting on what just happened as he fed 5,000 men and many women and children. And so they're sitting in those boats. All is calm, all is good. And it says in verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And so they set out on the lake. Jesus does what he does. Do y'all want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? A really good way to be like Jesus is to do what Jesus does and to look at the way he lives his life, just the way he lives his his daily moment-by-moment earthly existence and to imitate Jesus. And what he does is when he's exhausted, when life is overwhelming, when ministry is, is wearing on him, when the crowds keep coming to him, he goes and he spends time alone with his father. He goes and he prays. Jesus needed to pray. That should blow our minds. Jesus desired to pray. Jesus' daily bread, his sustenance was time spent with his, his father. And so that's a model for us. And so what he does is he tells them to go across the lake and he's going to walk. And he's gonna walk miles around the lake himself and he's going to do what he does, his habit of spending time alone with his father, just talking, talking and praying and looking out over the water during the night. And so all is calm, but not for long. Verse 47 says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Now, we, we've seen in the past weeks, this is a common thing on, on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, it's, it's not actually a sea, it's more like a lake, but it's called a sea. It's 13 miles across north to south and about 8 miles at its widest east to west. It's a significant body of water. Well, it's surrounded by these mountains on every side, 9,200 feet of elevation going down to 700 feet below sea level. Cold to warm, very fast. So that when weather comes in, with wind, when wind comes in over those mountains, things can turn in an instant from calm to dangerous. Some of you have been on the Sea of Galilee and you've experienced this. Very strong storms developing very quickly as this cold air whips down through the valleys and meets the hot air on the sea below. And so the disciples have been out on the water for a few hours. They have a sail on their boat. It's a big boat. It's about 30 feet long. We can put one up on the screen to show you the kind of boat that these these individuals were in. And and they are on this boat that's large enough to fit maybe 15 people at a time, but four can row with oars. And it says there was a headwind, painful headwind against them. So they're rowing, and they're rowing, and they're rowing, and it's like they're on a stairmaster. They're not moving anywhere. They're just working, working, working hour after hour, rowing against the wind, trying to fulfill what Jesus told them to do, to meet him on the other side. And it is painstaking, exhausting work. And Jesus is watching them from the shore. This is interesting. He can see them in the darkness, their lanterns bobbing up and down in the waves as their boat is not moving at all. Hour after hour, exhausting, backbreaking, discouraging, rowing. And it's now the middle of the night, and this exhaustion has led to what it normally does. If you've ever been on a boat as it's rocking up and down. By the way, I said Stairmaster. I think a rowing machine would probably be a better example of <laughs> the exercise equipment. They're not going anywhere. But any, any of you who have been out on a, especially a small craft like this, without an engine, on rocky waters, white-capped waters, it will make you sick in minutes. At least it'll make me sick in minutes, okay? And, and, and they are out there for, for hours, When you get off a boat in these kinds of conditions, you are just worn out completely. It it exhausts your body in a way that that wind and weather on land cannot compare to at all. And here they are, some of them professional fishermen, some of them professional accountants or zealots, whatever that is as a profession, and, and, and they are exhausted. And the storm's getting worse, and the weather is rising against them. The night is getting darker and colder. They are getting soaked with wind and with water and they are no closer to the shore than they had been at nightfall. Increasingly hopeless, increasingly helpless, increasingly desperate as the storm begins to rage against them. And this time, Jesus isn't in the boat with them. So as we walk through this passage, the first thing I want you to see, and this is so basic and and you might write this down, it says, number one, storms are sure to come storms are sure to come. The longer I've lived, the more I've come to know that storms in life are inevitable. You are either currently in a storm, you've just come out of a storm, or you are likely heading into a storm right now. Be encouraged, right? (laughs) But that is life, isn't it? Some of you can tell me from, from painful experience, how many of you have walked through a storm in the last year or so, I wonder? Many of us. Many of you, you have. Difficulties, setbacks, burnouts, these things are are part of life, storms. But how we deal with them when they come matters. Some of the storms I've experienced in life are storms that I've created. Some of you are not willing to admit this, but a a lot of our problems in life are the result of decisions we make, and those decisions have consequences. Some storms in life are because of of things that I've done, my own bad choices. There are some storms in my life that that are the result of other people's Bad choices. And that can be especially painful and, and difficult as, as people make foolish and wicked decisions that are, affect our lives terribly. There are other storms that we experience in life because we have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, Satan, who, who seeks to trip us up and destroy us, who wants to debilitate us and, and derail us and, and throw off our spiritual progress completely. Do you know you have an enemy? An enemy to be armed against, an enemy to stand against, to fight against, and to flee from in some situations but an enemy who wants to convince you to doubt God as hardship and storms come into your life. Storms are sure to come. Some of you are in one right now. Right now. And it's been difficult. And it's been fearful. And it's been anxiety-inducing. And you've begun to ask, why? Why, God, am I going through this? Why, God, is, is this so difficult? When is this going to end? When am I going to have an easy day? There haven't been easy days in a long time. I'm exhausted. I'm discouraged. I've been living for you and yet life is completely overwhelming. It's a constant storm. This is not how it ought to be. Yet I want you to notice something. Verse 45. Who sent the disciples out into the wind? Who sent the disciples out into the wind? Some of you are whispering, Jesus. That's right. Jesus, it says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So I want you to see number two, that some storms come because of obedience. Some storms come in life because of obedience. I want you to notice that this trial, this predicament was not in spite of their obedience. It was because they did exactly what Jesus told them to do, that they found themselves in this great difficulty. He said, get in the boat. He said, row to the other side. He said, I will meet you there, and yet the result of their obedience to this point has been nothing but challenge and exhausting trial. I know that's not encouraging to you, but I don't want you to miss this. We often think and assume that to be obedient to God will be the smoothest sailing in life, and that's not true. Often, that's, that's not true. True. We experience his goodness. We experience his provision. We experience his deliverance, but it does not always mean smooth sailing. And we can become discouraged so easily when we forget that. And we look around at our circumstances and we say, God, you told me to do this. God, you told me to set out on this mission. You told me to pursue this. I know I heard you. I was praying. I was seeking you in your word. You were leading me. Why is it so hard? Why has it been so difficult? Why is it so stressful? Why is it falling apart, and we can get frustrated and feel like God is absent from our boat in the middle of the storm. But to me, there's encouragement in even this. If you're walking in the path of obedience to God's Word, if you're abiding in Him daily and seeking to do His will, trials will come. Trials will come, but take comfort. As you abide in Him, you will still be on the right path. You will be Doing what he has called you to do. And I think so often we want to experience God in some way to confirm what we should do in obedience. We pray for things like, God, I want to make this decision, but I need peace. Give me peace about this decision. Anyone ever prayed that? Like you're looking for guidance from God and, and you're looking for the decision that gives you peace. And I think that's a good thing to ask God for. But remember the obedience of our Savior Christ as he's in the garden, knowing exactly what he's going to go through next on the cross. And he doesn't have peace he doesn't have peace he's he's full of stress sweating great drops of blood as he looks forward to his torture and death and he says god is there any other way and then he says but not my will but your will be done his obedience was not easy and neither will ours be at all times some storms come because of our obedience And we want for God to give us a sign to know what we're going to do next. But but let me tell you, what I've experienced in life and what Scripture confirms is that we don't experience God so that we're obedient. We don't get the sign so that we're obedient. What more often happens is as we obey God and as we step out in faithfulness, we see his hand. We experience his presence with us. We experience his goodness. And we'll see that in, in just a moment in this passage. The disciples are desperate. They're worn out they're not going to make it, they're losing hope, they're full of fear, and yet remember that Jesus is coming. And this is, this is so interesting to me. They're so discouraged and worn out and struggling in this headwind, and yet remember what they've just experienced through Jesus feeding the 5,000. Some storms come because of obedience. Number three, we see that Jesus's delay is not his departure. Just because we have to wait on the Lord does not mean that he is absent from us. Jesus' delay is not his departure. It says this in verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw, he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. I I want you to notice this. Though they can't see him, up on the mountainside, he is looking down in the water and in the darkness, he sees their lanterns, he sees their boat, he sees their struggle. He has not lost sight of them. He has not gone from them. Jesus can hear the the howling of the wind, the rising and falling violently upon the waves. He can see the boat and as it gets no nearer to land, an hour after hour, he watches and he waits. When we read Scripture, the watches of the night are these three-hour segments. The, The disciples set out at evening, 6 to 9 p.m. That's the first watch, and it's passed. And Jesus watches, he prays, and he waits. Jesus doesn't come. The moon is now darkened by clouds high above. Midnight passes, the second watch. And the disciples keep rowing, hour after hour, still no Jesus, still no shoreline. Jesus hasn't come. The second watch. It's now almost 3 a.m. They, dis- they continue to row. This is a journey that across this lake should take two or three hours, and they have been rowing now all night. 3 a.m., the third watch has passed. Jesus has not come. And now, in the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., when it is coldest and darkest, now at the point of utter exhaustion, in the worst part of the final part of the night, look what happens next. It says, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now now just picture that. You're out there rowing hour after hour and suddenly you see a figure, a, a, a being walking on top of the water. Not walking along the shoreline, not wading through the water, no, walking on top of the sea. But notice when he comes, the fourth watch of the night. Some of you have been waiting on the Lord a, a long time. You've been praying for something specific. You've been praying for, for some kind of provision. Maybe it's a, a spouse or a reconciliation with someone who you have a broken relationship with. Maybe it's a, a change in the church or a healing or a provision or for guidance. Waiting, waiting, unbearably waiting. And I think it can be so tempting for us to think that in that waiting, God has abandoned us, that he doesn't care. He doesn't know what we're going through, but what we get a glimpse of in this passage is the way that God works. In your waiting, he has not abandoned you. In his delay, he has not departed. He has not forgotten you. And though it may feel like he is absent when you need him, he sees you. Look at me, everyone, just look at me. God sees you. He knows exactly what you're going through today. He has not forgotten you. He is not far off. He is not at a distance. He is near to you and he cares and his timing is good. You can trust him. You can trust him. Wait on him. We don't always get to know the reason for his timing. We don't always get to know the reason why he waits till the fourth watch of the night. Why did he do that? I don't know. But it's in the fourth watch of the night when they are desperate and exhausted that Jesus comes walking to his disciples and he meets them in their hour of need. The fourth thing we see in this passage is that those who fear Jesus need fear nothing else. In this moment, the disciples like you would be are frightened for their lives. They're exhausted, they're worn out, they're afraid that they're going to die from the wind and the waves themselves and then they see a figure walking toward them on the water and that fills them with an even greater fear. They're frightened and and yet the professional fishermen spending their whole lives on the sea but the fury of the untamed waters, the darkness of the deep is overwhelming them and they have every reason to fear The stuff we fear in life, often we have real reason to fear it. It doesn't always play out the way we think it will in our minds, but there are real dangers to fear. And the question is, what do we do of them? What do we do with these fears? They have realized that all their experience as sailors, everything that they've known how to do their whole lives, they've passed the point at which they can maintain the fantasy that they are still in control. Sometimes we need to hit that point where we, we stop maintaining the fantasy that we are in control of our lives and in control of the outcomes. How many of you describe yourself as planners? Any planners here in the room? Yeah, a lot of planners. Planner is just what a control freak calls themselves, okay? So, and in this boat, there's a lot of planners who suddenly realize that their plans have gone out the window, that they can't handle it, that they can't control all the outcomes. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea he meant to pass them by a lot of people preach messages on just that phrase alone speculating on what it means i don't know why he meant to pass by them maybe he just wanted to show them that he was moving faster than them walking than they were rowing i don't know (laughs) But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, and they all saw him and were terrified. Suddenly there's an even greater fear. There's this this ghost on the water. I would be freaked out. I don't know about you, but I would guess you would be too. There's a man walking not through the water, not some optical illusion, not walking along the the shoreline. He's standing on the waves, standing on the waves as they rise and fall. And as they struggle against their oars, he is outpacing them on foot, is crazy and so if they were scared before they are terrified now in the face of a supernatural power over nature that they cannot comprehend it says but immediately he spoke to them and said take heart it is i do not be afraid it is i actually in the greek it it translates a little funny for us but he's actually saying take heart i am do not be afraid He speaks to them the name of God Almighty, the name that God gives himself in the Old Testament. I am, in a different language. Nonetheless, the message is the same. Take heart. I am God. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The the number one command we see in Scripture from God to us is this fear not. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Biblically, whenever anyone experiences the presence of God in their midst, when they grasp that it's God standing in front of them, that is God with them, they react with fear. A different kind of fear. An awe and a reverence that suddenly makes every other pressure in life shrink into the background. Because they're in the presence of the God who holds it all in his hands. And he speaks to them and he says, take heart. When you realize how powerful Jesus is, how how good he is, and that he is getting into the boat with you, you you won't be afraid of everything else. When you behold him rightly, when you behold him in his power and his majesty, everything else that you could possibly fear quakes in the presence of Jesus. And that is a a great comfort. You may say, but it seems to me that, that their fears, the disciples' fears are legitimate. And Jesus says, yes, but when I'm in the boat with you, even those fears are irrational. Fear not. I'm with you. And I think fear and worry, what they come from in life is one of two places. Either we doubt God's power over the storm, or we doubt his presence with us in the storm. And you see, the story depicts how we often feel in life. We feel like the storm's raging around us, and Jesus isn't in our boat. He's not there. There's no way out and the waves are coming, and they're beginning to break over the sides of the boat, and life seems overwhelming. The water's filling our boat. We feel like we're being drowned in bills or concerns or or marriage problems or anxieties with your kids or issues at work, and and it's all just overwhelming, all-consuming. And you ask God, how am I going to make it? How am I going to make it? And you look at Jesus, and you say, do you even care? Aren't you supposed to take care of me? Aren't you supposed to take care of my friends who are suffering and struggling? Do you even hear our prayers? And in a storm, Jesus will always do one of two things. He'll either show off his power by delivering you from the storm, or he'll show his power by delivering you through the storm and showing his ability to keep you even in the storms. Sometimes he'll look at the storm in your life that's raging around you, and he'll calm it with a word. He'll say, peace, be still. And sometimes he'll look at you as everything is raging around you, and he'll say to you and to your heart, peace, be still. I'm with you. The peace that passes all understanding is not always, not even usually his calming of the storm, but it's his presence with you in the storm. And some of you have experienced this profoundly. you walked through great tragedy. The thing that you feared most actually happened. And in that, you experience the presence and the power of God in in ways that the rest of us can't even comprehend. This is what he does. He sustains us through the storm. He can look out over the the deep and rebuke it. He can walk on water. Fear not. Number five, and, and we'll move through these last two quickly. We see in this passage that the antidote to worry is worship. Worship. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. Matthew's gospel adds a little more detail to this. It says, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Jesus gets in the boat, and this time the storm immediately ceases as soon as he's present, uh, not with even a word this time. And the disciples, despite everything that they've just been through, despite the exhaustion, what they do is they immediately begin to worship. When life is overwhelming, when we are in the midst of storms, it can be so tempting for our, for our eyes to be drawn inward and downward, inward and downward. And if you've ever walked through depression or anything like that, you know what I'm talking about. You begin to think of yourself constantly, right? And yet what we see here is, is this. When we rightly behold Jesus and we, be, we begin to worship him and our eyes are turned outward, when we begin to direct our gaze towards God, our eyes rise above our circumstance. And we begin to realize that he holds the whole world in his hands and he holds our future. In the summer of 2020, I I think a lot of you were overcome and overwhelmed by uh, life and the world and it hasn't stopped since then, has it? Me personally, as a pastor, I was overwhelmed with what do you do? How do you minister through this? Uh, How do you minister through a pandemic and through the, the world trying to tear itself apart in our culture? How do you make wise decisions? How do you do any of this? And it was fearful and overwhelming. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest gifts that I experienced during that season of fear, even as I, behind the scenes, privately, was dealing with my own personal tragedies that that I wasn't broadcasting to everyone else, one of the most sustaining things during that particular summer was when we would come together, just a few of us every week, and, and do online worship with you, the church. We praise God in the midst of the storms of life. And week after week, that turning of our attention to God, our Savior, our our ever-present helper and friend changed everything. It was sustaining. The antidote to our worry is worship. Are you worried? Are you anxious? Are, Are you cast down? Sing, praise, adore, declare the mighty and might and glory of God and it will change you. You say, Mark, isn't worship more than singing? Yes, but it's certainly not less than that. We orient our hearts towards praise, and it changes our perspective. It shakes us out of being paralyzed and polarized by those things that we fear. Worship is awe and intimacy. It's marveling and fearing the power and glory of God, and yet knowing that he has paid it all for you and that he loves you and cares about you. Lastly, number six, it's possible to experience God directly, yet miss it completely. It says, and they were utterly astounded, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't get it, but their hearts were hardened. There is a warning for all of us here. They've just experienced an incredible miracle. They've seen the hand of God, and yet immediately, as storms rise up in their lives, they forget. They miss it. They don't know what it indicates, that Jesus Christ is God, that he's not merely a teacher, that he is I am, and they missed it, and we do this too. We've experienced God's provision. We've experienced his comfort. We've, we've experienced his goodness and how real and how present he is. And then life begins to overwhelm us and we miss it. And so I, I just want to ask you this morning to consider what is the condition of your heart? What is the condition of your heart towards God? And as we reflect and as we respond to the Lord through worship to simply ask, is my heart hard? I, am, I, am I doubting God? Do I have a hard time turning to him in worship and praise? Or is my heart soft toward God? The disciples' hearts are hard to God and they miss his his goodness and his power. Jesus is holy God. When you have a soft heart toward him, you know how much you need him. You know how much you desperately need him. You can trust Jesus. And as the band comes up, we'll come to a conclusion. What we see in scripture, in in the whole of scripture, again and again, is that the wrath of God is like raging waters. It rises against sin. It crushes down on depravity. And we can be sure that it will destroy us all. But the good news of Jesus, the ultimate good news of Jesus that we look to, is that at the end of his ministry, he went to a cross in our place. He plunged himself into the depths of God's wrath. He took our rightful condemnation upon himself so that if we simply trust in him, we can have confidence that no storm will crush us. That, that any end in this life is not the end because after three days in the grave, he rose again, bursting forth in glory, conquering the darkness of death and the stinging condemnation of sin as it fled from his presence. Come what may, the storms of this life, though they threaten to crush us, Cannot be compared with the glory that is to come. And, and so, what I want to do as we conclude is remind you that there are people to pray for you over here, but really, in, a, in, a, in response to this message on fear and what we do with it, I just need to pray for you. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, I look around this room and I know there's, there's people in this room who are just overcome and overwhelmed by fear, and, and even this message is, is not connecting and not sinking in, Lord. I pray you give us soft hearts. I pray you would give us soft hearts to behold your glory and your goodness. your presence with us. Lord, I pray that as as we're facing winds and waves, we would keep our eyes fixed on you and you alone, knowing that you have not abandoned us, that you have not lost sight of us, Lord, and that you care about us. Lord, set our hope on that which is eternal, that which is everlasting, on our salvation, in you and you alone. In Jesus' name.